Hello, I'm Zara, a self-published author of young adult and new adult fiction. And I'm Kelly, a fantasy writer being held together by threads of optimism. And this is Writish, the podcast by writers for writers, where we discuss craft and hot topics in the writing community. Today, we are going to be talking about world building. And I think a wonderful point to start in is the basics that everyone should know. And as a high fantasy writer, I just want to put, you know, the best foot forward with our little like world building journey here that we're about to go on. World building isn't just for fantasy books. It's not just for fantasy writers. I think every writer, whether you write in contemporary, in sci-fi, or anywhere in between, you need to, you know, have some world building work going on. No one has to be like Tolkien's level of world building per se, but you need to have some awareness of this world you're creating. So I know, Zara, you write sci-fi, and of course, you're going to have to plot with you know, a science fiction novel and aliens and all of the things. I think my sci-fi novel can kind of touch on clearly not fantasy. It's not so far removed from contemporary either that I can talk to what it's like to kind of world build with contemporary too. So my first book in the trilogy deals with stuff on Earth. Very short amount of time on Earth, but to set up the world, for me, I had to know Area 51, or at least my version of it, because let's be real, no one's ever going to know what it's actually like. I was like, okay, this is where my main character lives, and her father's a general, and is it possible for her father to be this old and general, which is world building, even though you're like, oh, that's a character. You know, it's set in the world and in a way that matters, because it's the military world. How far away do all the soldiers live from her? Because if she's being kidnapped in the middle of the night, what's a realistic response time for them? And then you need to think about, obviously, the alien culture. I actually had to think about one the most, because that's the alien race of the male main character. But then I had two others I had to kind of think about that one plays a part in the third book and the other is like kind of just name dropped multiple times throughout the series. Just to help flush out the main alien race's history, which is also world building, even if it's not shown in the main story of a book. And you also want to know that if you're in a contemporary world, maybe you're in a real city and you have to look up travel times and things like that. But if you're making up a town and you're saying, you know, like it's in a certain location. Uh, So if let's say I made up a town in Colorado, uh, because I feel like a lot of romances do that for some reason. (laughs) Colorado is for lovers. You have to think about, you know, what's the weather like there? How does that change things? You're not necessarily going to have them on a beach if they don't live near a beach. Or if you want them to go to a beach, they have to travel there. And if, you know, you're setting it at a certain time of the year where there's snow, you could have your plot point of, oh, they get snowed in. This is how at this ski resort. And then you got to do some digging about this ski resort now and logistics with that and how busy they are around that 
that time of year that they do have all this snow. And then it's maybe like there's a coffee shop that's right down the road from the ski resort that this couple goes to. And it's even though if it's contemporary, you're still world building if you're making up a town in a setting. Exactly. And something really good to know is a good world building, just in my experience or my opinion, and I think a lot would agree, is how you have your characters interact with the world. And that's what helps the reader immerse better. And even though it kills me to say this, flowery writing doesn't immerse a lot of readers. Like I love flowery writing. I tend to write that way. I tend to sprinkle it in. But what is really going to set the world up for the reader is how your characters interact with the world and how the world is affecting your character. Not exactly five sentences describing what this butterfly looks like because it's like this weird butterfly bumblebee hybrid hummingbird amalgamation of wonder. (laughs) Yeah, like if your character is allergic to it and is scared to move because they see that creature, that's one thing, but you don't necessarily need to go into all the flora and fauna of your world unless it matters to the story because if your character wouldn't notice a flower that they walk by, then the reader's not going to notice it because the reader is basically along for the with the character unless you know maybe you have an omniscient narrator and you have a sentence where it's like x character was too caught up in their emotions to be able to appreciate the blooming tulips that were starting to grow outside their house now that spring had arrived again you know like you can do that yeah but you don't want to go on and on about things that unfortunately don't matter to the plot yet for too long or you're going to lose readers yes exactly you want to do it just enough. You got to find that sweet spot. And I believe you, you did a blog post about this, didn't you, Zara? I had been hosting a writing stream and someone was world building and was like, oh, I don't know where to start. It just seems so nebulous and they're not writing high fantasy. And I think they were kind of, oh, I don't know what to do if I'm not writing high fantasy, but I feel like I should be world building, right? That's what authors always talk about. So I made a post on my Kofi page where I kind of went through a bunch of questions you can ask yourself to kickstart your world building. And that will be linked in the show notes of this episode, but we you know, have kind of a same list off the top of our heads. So like, what are things that you would include, uh, you know, to tackle in world building? So like some vital elements that people gloss over, I would say a big one is the environment because I don't think people give enough credit to the environment in which their characters are in and how it literally affects everything down to the economy. Cause like what's the agriculture? Like what is trade like? You know, that and that's gonna affect the economy. What is the architecture like? How are the homes built that these people live in? What's the climate? Because the climate is also gonna affect the architecture. There's a difference between environment and climate as well where like the environment is more like a baseline where like the climate can vary, but there's obviously seasons and all of that. But the environment can heavily affect how buildings and structures will be built in this world. And the environment also affects technology that can be used. And of course, history and lore, because this is how the locals will explain the natural world around them. As an example for the technology used, especially tied in with the homes, kind of the way you were praying it, 
is solar panels and wind turbines. You know, there are certain places where in the real world, not in fiction, that it's very hard to suddenly switch over to solar panels everywhere. Like even in New York, even though more people are doing it and there are portable ones, which are great. The reality of attaching solar panels to every single apartment building is a big job and expensive and not really one that the city can afford to just shell out. Let's say your world is set in a place that realized that it needed this a lot sooner. So then you would have like, oh yeah, you know, the solar panels are there and no one ever thinks about it really anymore until something goes wrong, which would be great because it's a novel and you need things to go wrong for your characters. I agree about the history and lore, which is like affects people more so on a day-to-day basis. Although sometimes people are like, oh, that's a myth and they don't really think about it while other people are very superstitious. An example of that is in Shadow and Bone, the TV show, because you are introduced to the Crow characters, Inej, who is a spy and a killer. Eventually, I'm not sure if the show changed things from the books, because from what I heard in the book, she refuses to kill for a very long time because she's so religious. Whereas uh, her like boss slash friend slash love interest doesn't believe in the religion at all. But at the same time, he respects her beliefs. So like that changes how they both interact with certain people. Things that I think about a lot are like gender inequality and education systems, and those can tie in together. And then religion, which we kind of already touched on. Government systems. Do you have a tumultuous government that, you know, gets overthrown multiple times? Or has it been peaceful for many years under one specific ruler like a monarchy or under a group of people, which would be an oligarchy? Or if it's built more like the United States, it's a representative democracy. And if you Google types of government, you know, you'll find a bunch of things and that might be helpful. But those are just examples off the top of my head. And then you have class systems and societal classifications. You know, in the real world, uh, India has the caste system, which is much more strict than even the class system that existed in Britain. And in America, we like to say, oh, we're, we're not classist. And that's so not true obviously. (laughs) You also, in that consideration, is it a meritocracy? Can someone rise above their circumstances if they prove themselves? And that could be like part of your story where a character is trying to and maybe they succeed or maybe they learn that the world promising a meritocracy is a lie and that it's actually not a meritocracy. How is wealth inherited? Is it primogeniture, which even though it sounds like first child, it's actually first male child inherits, which is, you know, obviously inherently sexist, or is it a maternal world that only the daughters inherit? Or is it equal, which again ties into gender inequality. So you have these more heavy hitting issues that you need to think about that might affect a character on a day-to-day basis, or it might affect them and they don't think about it, depending on how they grow up, and especially if they enjoy the privileges provided by the state of affairs. And then, you know, there are happier topics like, oh, what's music like? Uh, What are other forms of entertainment? Do people own pets? If so, are there animals that aren't allowed as pets, but other ones that are acceptable? You know, like there are people on farms who have chickens, but like no one in the city would have a chicken as a pet. 
it because uh, it just wouldn't work out. <laughs> so things like that, where you don't want to just do heavy stuff or things that you know, architecture is beautiful, but it's not the most human element of a society, although you still need to think about it. Yes. And I know we've talked about a lot of things. And dear listener, if you're feeling overwhelmed, it's okay because world building can be overwhelming. So we should kind of touch on when is it too much? Like, when are you spending too much time building on this world? And in my opinion, with my experience is when you are months into world building and the rest of the outline hasn't gotten attention. So for example, if your plot isn't heavily relying on a government system, still craft one, but don't spend hours meticulously writing pages of how this single village with the main character visits maybe once has a unique governing system that also includes a bloodline governor and a separate board for religious officials. Like that's not necessary unless it's essential to the plot and you're just wasting time. So a good reference to this is in Project Cursebreaker. There are only two kingdoms out of the five, well, two or three, I think it's three out of the five that are ruled under a quote unquote king or queen style monarchy. And the breathing is actually ruled by a pirate court with the pirate king, but it doesn't really act like a monarchy. It's just more of a title. And yes, it is inspired by Pirates of the Caribbean. And then the bustling who has a station governor acting on behalf of the Crimson Queen who is in the burning. So it's more so like a representation there, but before the burning entered the bustling kingdom, it was more so like a representative democracy that they had going on. And these kingdoms are like this because it enhances the plot and it keeps the characters moving along. And it also shows how different each culture is too that my character is kind of going through and is a little bit shocked about. So it's it's good to be aware of that. And it's also good to be aware that while this process can be very addicting and it's very fun, it's good to focus on world building for the characters in the story to be sure to also like craft the the characters to be crafted as well as the world and vice versa. You don't want to have a really strong world and really weak characters So and vice versa. So know the important things in your world that affect your specific story plot to help strengthen it and not swallow it whole. Although the world may be beautiful, no reader is going to enjoy excessive descriptions with barely anything happening to the characters to move the story along because that's why they're reading the book to read about these characters. Yeah, exactly. If you've written an entire encyclopedia about your world and barely shows up in the story, which is what Kelly was covering, um, but also isn't going to, you know, help you promote the book by being something that maybe you're eventually going to share in snippets with your readers as like behind the scenes or as a pre-order bonus or whatever, which has, you know, been done by multiple authors traditionally published and indie published, then you're wasting time, as Kelly said. And I don't like to say that often because you do learn something from everything you write. But if you are writing stuff that is only for your eyes and is keeping you away from writing the story, you are spending too much time on it. Kind of how we talked about characters. Like you don't necessarily need to know the height and weight and exact time that a character was born unless you, you know, decide your character traits based on 
horoscopes, which is fine because I know some people do that. You don't need to know every single detail about a character like you maybe would when you're creating a character in a video game, unless it's relevant to the plot and the example that I had used in that episode was height differences between my characters normally during a conversation where the characters are mad with each other and, you know, can they maintain eye contact? Does someone have to climb on something or does someone have to look down on someone else and things like that? Because that then becomes relevant to the plot. And again, just to reiterate, world building should support your storytelling and your characters because you can't have well fleshed out characters living in like a blank space because that gets rid of their ability to interact with their environment, which gets rid of the reader's ability to interact with an environment. So like Kelly said, you need characters and the environment to exist well enough that you can write about it, but not so deeply that it doesn't matter to the reader if it doesn't show up on the page. I think that's very well said. So with all these things in mind, I think we should get to talk about something a little bit more fun. Not that this hasn't been fun because it has been, but I think we should talk about our personal favorite parts of the process. And I know me personally, I love creating lore and I love creating history in my world. I love deciding what characters will call where home. So in Cursebreaker, the trolls were native to the Bloodless and they were not native anywhere else. So the fact that there is the princess, the the runaway princess from the Bloodless going around with this giant troll, like they're trying to be so sneaky and so down, like on the down low about it. But whenever you're walking around at a very tropical oceanic environment and you're a nine foot troll who's not native there and no one has seen forever you kind of get some looks so like that's interesting and um of course there's other creatures that like Alara has never seen before. Uh, for example, I have sirens and mer people or merfolk. So basically, merfolk are amphibious and they can go in the ocean or up on dry land, and they're very humanoid. And just think of them like m- like mixing in with the other humans that live in breathing. And then there are the sirens, which are more like your traditional mermaid where they have like the womanly top and then the fish bottom. So that's just some of the creatures and where they call home like examples. And then another thing that I love is how the main character will interact with the creatures and the local environment. So calling way, way back to Adventures in Thimbleton lore, the main character is Alice in Wonderlanded down a well and wakes up in a world where humans are extinct and only anthropomorphic animals thrive. So you can imagine how hard this would be for her to interact with this world where she's the only one left of her kind. And then in turn, how this world will interact with her for her being the first human any of them have laid eyes on in eons. They've read about humans in history books and now they're looking at one. So that's some of my favorite parts of this whole process is coming up with those little nuances and details. Yeah, I definitely have had experience with the creatures, although all of mine have more human sides to them because it was in my paranormal romance trilogy. But thinking about werewolves and especially when there is so much werewolf lore that exists in pop culture already vampires sirens what are their histories how do they interact with each other and then like 
in the Twilight series, vampires say that werewolves smell really bad and werewolves say the same thing of vampires and they absolutely hate each other. And in mine, you know, they don't really care about each other. They exist in different areas. They are more insular species until someone does something bad to the other, you know, like they would retaliate. It is a fact in my world that a werewolf bite could kill a vampire and a vampire bite could kill a werewolf, which is in a lot of stories. But I know that because uh, there's a warning that I put in the story for a character who needs it but otherwise like that would have been something that maybe I thought about and would know but keep from the reader or I would just be like I don't need to think about that because it's not coming up in the story and you know for Stellar Blood like I mentioned uh, speculating about technology for Area 51 is cool and coming up with the actual technology for the aliens is really fun and in my you know, young adult dystopian, which I'm going to be working on for NaNoWriMo this year, but have also worked on in the past. So which is why I'm able to say that I know that coming up with the technology for the futuristic and dystopian world has been fun for me already. But again, all of these things need to fit into the world that you're creating. You don't want something that's so Like you can have something that would never fit into the real world, but if it doesn't fit into the world you're creating, then you also have a problem. I also think we should take a moment to talk about how fun it is to put twists on traditional creatures. So like, for example, in Cursebreaker, Birdie, the troll, is not your typical troll whenever you think troll. So whenever Alara is going through what she thinks is this like like garden and there's all these statues of these creatures, she's describing what they look like because in my world, trolls are not these big hideous things that burrow and live underground. Yes, they, they can burrow. And yes, they have things to camouflage them in their natural environment, but they have more of a feline appearance mixed in with a few other creatures But the thing that I really like point out the most is his feline like ears. They're very oversized think like a finnick fox almost. It's those things that can also be fun. And I know a lot of people will put like their own twists on werewolves and vampires. And it's awesome that creatures that are so old to humans like that, we're still over here creating new spins on them. And I think it's great. But also I think we could talk about soft magic versus hard magic because you've written with that before. So what was that like? I think I've mentioned it in the outlining episode and I've hinted at it here with the, oh, you should really only go into depth on stuff that's going to matter for your story. I write in a way that if I need something, then I come up with it. But until then, it's mostly just character and plot in my head. So it was very easy for me to come up with a soft magic system for my paranormal romance trilogy. But I didn't need to come up with a hard system because it it wouldn't have necessarily served the story any better. Whereas eventually I plan to write a high fantasy series with 
lots of different species and different magic for each species and rules for each species. And, you know, because I'm pretty sure that in that story, at some point, I'm going to have a character break the rule of magic of someone else's magic system. And then there's going to be a conflict there. And then, you know, because obviously in the real world, unfortunately, people judge other people's religions for things like that. And I want to kind of capture that with the magic systems. But in order to do that, I need to have a lot more rules than just in my paranormal romance trilogy, where yes, there were originally only 13 witches and everyone is descended from them. And there are covens, but people can be individual too, as long as they're not, you know, doing bad things with their magic. And you don't need to say words necessarily to do magic, especially when you're from my main character's bloodline, because it's extra special. If you do a spell, you write it down in the grimoire, which is then, you know, kind of passed through the generations. So I hint at the possibility that there is a harder magic, but I didn't actually create that. And therefore it stayed as a soft magic system. I think that's a really good way of explaining it because I've, even though I write fantasy, I try to stay away from magic systems just because that's still a bit intimidating for me. But I I eventually want to like circle back around to it. Like I might come back to that. But whenever I'm creating like right now, like creating lore and thinking about lore for Project D, it is taking everything in me not to just go crazy on it and go over abundance and really like write all these little myths that are only for my eyes. Because I know that while yes, that could be made into like a future book, a future like encyclopedic book for Helen Avaria, which is the world that Project D takes place in, it's not a priority right now. And the main focus should obviously just be getting the story written. But it is, it's a lot of fun. And whenever you get into a groove, it's hard to like stop or put the brakes on it. So with that, this is The Rightish Podcast, and we will be back with another episode next week. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at The Rightish Podcast without a hyphen and on Kofi at ko-fi.com slash The Rightish Podcast. Again, no hyphen. Be sure to join us next week for our conversation about NaNoWriMo. Bye. Bye.